0: Quick thank you to uh, Andrew and to Edward for playing music and for Christian for leading us this morning. I'm going to get rid of this. There we go. Uh, Also, for the Sunday school, there is a Sunday school, and I'm looking around the room and suddenly realizing our Sunday school is growing, which is excellent. We were praying for a number of months that God would greatly increase our Sunday school, and he is. So if you are under 12, I think it's 12 and under, yes, Sharon? Yep, under 12. Follow Sharon out the back there, and there is a Sunday school class for you for this morning. For the rest of us, would you take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to read from Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verses 10 to 31. And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, and then I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word together. So find your place, and then we'll stand together and read together. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse number 10. Please stand. And you know what? I'm going to back it up to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter just to get the context of God's word. And the word of God says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and through his eyes, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. There there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street from called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight." But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Just a brief prayer before we sit Loving Father, this morning we pray that you would incline our hearts to your word and not to dishonest gain. Turn away, O God, our eyes from looking at worthless things. Revive us, O Lord, in your ways. Establish your word to us as that which produces reverence for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Christ's sovereign choice of his disciples and servants requires a response to him from each of us. And the question is that we're going to try and answer this morning is how will we respond? Christ sovereignly chose his twelve disciples to be his apostles and to continue his mission that Christ had begun. The twelve submitted to him as their Lord, their Savior, and God. They followed him, and with the exception of Judas, they went out preaching and serving and spreading the gospel. They suffered for him, and all but one died a violent death. Christ also sovereignly chose Saul to be his apostle to the Gentiles. And the text here before us today illustrates this great principle, of Christ's sovereign leadership and control over his mission. He chose Saul and Ananias, and he sovereignly chooses you and I to serve him on mission wherever he sends us, whether it's the home or the office or the schoolroom or the hospital room, a church or a job site or a factory, wherever he sends us, God's sovereign choice requires a response from each of us. Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard me explain a little bit about the sovereignty of God, but just to give us a reminder, the sovereignty of God is his authority and power to accomplish his will as the supreme ruler of all things. God demonstrates his sovereignty through his decrees and his actions, which are planned in complete independence of anything outside of himself and enacted throughout time and space. God's sovereignty extends over all creation and particularly his acts of predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying his people. The Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, gives us great verses that help us understand something of the sovereignty of God. And in Isaiah 46, 9-11, the Lord says, I am God. There is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He calls a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. Those are the words of the Lord our God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. And God's sovereignty is a source of great comfort to all Christians because our hope rests in a God alone who controls all things for the glory of His name and the good of His people. We have hope. We have a reason to rejoice this morning. The world's going crazy. I mean, just look at the news for five minutes. It's just about driving you to depression. You read all the stuff that's going on in the world. But you know what? Our God is sovereignly in control of it all. And he is, as the Bible says, working all things for our good. According to his purposes. He has a sovereign purpose and plan in everything that's happening. And that's how we can have faith and trust in our God this morning. We can take great comfort that despite all of this, God's purposes will not be put aside. God's sovereignty certainly does not remove man's will. Rather, our will must be brought into submission to God. It will bring us to humility before God, and it requires our obedience to God. And our text this morning displays these three responses from Saul and Ananias 2 to Christ's sovereign call to serve in his mission. If you picked up uh, the little yellow sheet this morning, or if you didn't have a bullet and you grab one, there's a yellow sheet inside of it. I don't, I've lost mine already. Uh, it has the uh, sermon outline. You can follow along with that if you'd like to. So first thing I want to make, make us understand or get, get through to us all is Christ's sovereign call to serve in Paul's life. Notice in verse 4, Saul was sovereignly chosen by Christ for salvation. And then you see in verse 15 that Saul was sovereignly chosen by the Lord to be his instrument or his tool or his vessel. Verse 15 and 16 say, But the Lord said to him, that's Ananias, Go, go. For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Saul was sovereignly chosen by the Lord to be his instrument, his vessel. He was no longer his own. He now belonged to Christ. And God's salvation... For all of us moves us from being slaves to sin, which leads to death and all the rest of the problems that we have. It moves us from that to slaves to righteousness, which is to serve God, to love God, to obey God, and know the greatest joy possible in that slavery to righteousness. As Paul describes it in Romans 6. Saul was chosen by the Lord to bear Christ's name, to be his representative apostle to the Gentiles, and the scripture shows that out. You read through Paul's letters, Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant called as an apostle. I'm no Greek scholar, but I'm told that the word bondservant could actually be translated very easily and quite accurately as slave. Paul, a slave called as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In Galatians 1, verse 1, similar again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Christ. And in Galatians 1, Ephesians 3, Paul... Sorry, one quick quick, uh, reminder... His name is Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. But as we know him through the rest of the Bible's history, he's Paul the Apostle. So if you hear me talk about Saul, then Paul, is the same person. I'm just jumping back and forth. Keep that in mind. So in Galatians 1, Ephesians 3, Saul was chosen by the Lord to preach the gospel among the Gentiles and to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to represent him in writing and speaking God's word as an apostle. We see here in verse 16 of our text of Acts chapter 9 that Saul was sovereignly chosen by Christ to suffer for his name's sake. And in our same chapter, we have that spelled out for us. It starts already in verse 23. The Jews plot against Saul to put him to death, but he escaped. In verse 29, the Hellenists now attempt to put Saul to death, but he escapes. In Acts 13, the Jews incited persecution against Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 14, the Gentiles and Jews attempt to have Paul and Barnabas stoned. In Acts chapter 14, a little later, the Jews succeed in stoning Paul. And I love the scene because at that scene, he gets up, kind of brushes off the stones, pats down his cloak, goes back into the city, and carries on doing what he was doing. There was constant persecution for all the rest of Saul's life. He was chosen by God to continue Christ's mission to spread the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Christ sovereignly called Saul to be his servant and his apostle. And Christ is still sovereignly calling men and women, older and younger, to serve him in his mission to reach the world with the gospel. Now, does that mean that every believer is sovereignly called to be an evangelist or a missionary or a pastor or a teacher or a preacher, an elder, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher? And my answer is no. It's not what it means. To quote my good friend Larry Page back in in Canada, Larry was a, a quiet, gentle chap in our church. He was an elder. And he was a beekeeper. And one day he said, can the Lord use a humble beekeeper to spread the gospel in his area? And the answer is absolutely yes. But notice what Paul says. Not here, but in Galatians 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul is recounting his conversion and his call to the Galatians. And this is what he says. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Saul recognized that the Lord had sovereignly set him apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to preach Christ, to write scripture. So does the Lord set us apart to certain roles? Obviously not apostles, that's finished and done. And the answer is, yes, He does set us apart to certain roles. The Lord sets us apart to the role and vocation in life He's called us to. Maybe as a Christian tradie, sharing Christ on a job site, like Tyler's, for example. Or maybe as a Christian professional, a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman. Maybe it's as a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or a missionary. It may be as a mom at home, as a teacher in a school. But you know what? Here's one thing we got to get straight in our heads. Whatever role and place that God has sovereignly called you and placed you, it is not greater or lesser than any other role. God has a role for each of us, and God sovereignly calls us and places us in those different roles to accomplish His purposes, to take the gospel with us wherever we go. I remember on a job site uh, working... Uh, I remember one in particular, we were working on this house in uh, um, Lions Bay, which means nothing to anybody here because it's in Canada. But in Lions Bay, it did one thing more than anything else. It rained nonstop. And there we are, right? Two guys, rain gear, rain hats. And we got, we're putting uh, shingles on the side of a house, shingle, cedar shingles. And we're huddled up underneath the overhang, right? And neither of us want to move very fast out into the rain because we'll get wet So what a great opportunity, as we're doing that, to share Christ with the guy beside me who doesn't know anything about Jesus. I had some great opportunities to share Christ on a job site. Was God using me there? Absolutely. Will God use you in your vocation, in your area, wherever God has put you? Absolutely. Does God use us in more specific areas? That's also true. So how do we understand, how do we know God's calling for us in this life to serve wherever He wants us. How do we know? Well, I can't give you anybody else's experience. I can only really give you my own, so I'll share that with you. For me, not long after i had been converted, I had a desire to serve the Lord in preaching. Did that automatically mean that I was called? No, not necessarily at all. I had a... Um, much later, sorry, I was, after I began to preach and itinerant ministry, traveling from churches to churches, I had several older godly men in my life take me aside to tell me that God had given me a gift and that I ought to use it to serve Him. Did that mean that I was called to it? And the answer is no, not necessarily. But as I wrestled with the Lord, striving in prayer, seeking to know the Lord's mind, then a deep conviction settled in my heart that this was the only thing that I could do, that I must do. Nothing else could I carry on doing. I needed to do this. How long between that and when I became a pastor? Well, actually, it was about 10 years. I kept going, kept looking for the opportunity, kept waiting until God had opened the door for that to happen. And he did eventually. Here's the point. Christ sovereignly calls us, and that calling demands a response from Saul in our text and from each of us. What kind of response should there be? Well, Christ's sovereign call to serve demands, first of all, humility. In Acts chapter 9, we see that Saul was humbled by the Lord in his conversion. In verse 4, he was knocked off his feet, lying prostrate on the ground. In verse 8, he was blinded. And this great, courageous, persecuting man had to be led by the hand of those he had been leading. In verses 9 to 12, he had to go and he was made to wait for Ananias. Interesting, right? There he is, blind, in a house, fasting and praying and waiting. And he trusts God as he brings a man he had just been looking for to bind him and take him to Jerusalem. And Ananias is called, Lord, you go and, and, and you're gonna lay hands on him and he's gonna receive his sight and gonna be used by me. Ananias walked in and there's a picture in the, on the internet about this, like a little cartoon picture. And Ananias is standing behind Saul with his hands on Saul's shoulders. And I wonder for a split second what went through both their minds in that moment. Ananias is looking at the head of this man who has bound and sought to kill friends and Christian family members of his. I mean that members of the church. And I know I to stand there, and Paul's there, and he's blind; he can't see anything. And he feels these two hands on his shoulders. The man, one of the men, he came looking to seek and bind and take back to Jerusalem, and possibly, sorry, possibly see and put to death. This man is now laying his hands on Saul's shoulders. Both of them had to humble themselves. They were humbled by the Lord, one to serve another who possibly hated him or at one time hated him. And the other one had to humble himself and allow somebody he had been looking to kill just a few days earlier to come and serve him. That's humility. In verses 20 to 21, the Bible tells us that Saul amazed his listeners by proclaiming that this Jesus is the son of God. Saul is recognized by scholars today as one of the greatest thinkers and philosophers of his day. And he had to stand up in his own context of the Jewish synagogue and say, You know what? I was wrong. Jesus is the Son of God. And throughout his ministry, Saul or Paul displayed the same humility. If you would go to Philippians 3, verses 5 to 11, we see there how Saul, Paul, recounts losing everything he once valued for Christ. In that passage, in verse 5, he says he was the son of Mosaic law-abiding parents who had him circumcised exactly on the eighth day according to the law. He was a Benjamite. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That in his context meant that he had a pure lineage of parents all the way back to the very beginning of the nation. He could trace his line, no intermarrying. In Acts 20 and 28, 22 and verse 28, sorry, he tells us that he was a Roman citizen. He didn't buy it. He was born that way. That's a huge ranking in that whole society. In Acts 22 and verse 3, he tells us that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That's like saying, I got my PhD at Oxford. He had the highest education you could possibly get in his day. In Philippians 3 verse 5, he was a Pharisee dedicated to the pursuit of obedience to the law in every manner. And he could say, I was blameless in regards to the law. He had a zeal for God. He was persecuting the church. He wasn't doing it just because he didn't like people. He had a zeal for God. Obviously completely misguided and completely misinformed. But this man had everything he could possibly want. And if he didn't have it already, he could get it very easily. He was at the pinnacle of his life that he thought in those moments. But God intervened in Acts chapter 9. And Christ gently humbled this great man to be his greatest servant. Christ humbled Saul to gently bend Saul's will to his own. He who was once respected and trusted and listened to by the Jews was now maligned and hated and pursued and persecuted. He suffered the loss, he talks about in Philippians 3, of these things and counted them as rubbish compared to the Excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom he suffered the loss of all things. You know what Paul could write many, many years later, after his call and conversion? He wrote it in Acts 20, verse 18 and 19. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility. Often you see little pictures of Saul's conversion. I don't know why it is, but there's always a horse in the background running away. And there's Saul laying on the ground. In a sense, what happened was the Lord reached down and he just pushed Saul off the horse and dropped him on the ground and humbled him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 and 3, For I determined to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. That, brothers and sisters, is humility. Saul was humbled by God to serve in Christ's mission. Saul humbled himself, even calling himself at the very end of his life the chief of sinners. But as great an example of humility is, as Saul is, our Lord Jesus Christ is a greater example. He is the ultimate example of humility and service. He humbled himself to an extent that none of us can even grasp. From enthroned in glory to swaddled in cloths and lying in a feed manger. From unceasing worship of angels to the mocking and curses of men whom he had created from glorified with His Father to crucified between two thieves. From heaven's heights to the depths of a borrowed tomb, our Lord Jesus Christ humbled Himself. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, That although Christ existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How great, beloved, how great is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who calls us to humble ourselves, but first set for us the ultimate example of what humility really is. So what do we do with this? We're called to respond in humility to Christ's sovereign call in your life. Christ is putting a call on your life. And you strive in prayer and fasting, kind of like Paul was doing as he was waiting for Ananias. He wasn't eating and he wasn't drinking. He was just praying and waiting for God to come and deal with him. How do we respond in humility to that call? I think the answer can be found in that passage in Philippians 2. Before I do that, I want us to see something else. There is a great need to humble ourselves before the Lord our God because one of the greatest dangers we face in any sort of ministry calling, no matter what it is, is the issue of pride, right? It's pride that thinks, because I serve the Lord, I'm a somebody. It's pride that loves, like Diotrephes in 3 John 9, to have the first place. It's pride that's Proverbs 11:2 says, "That brings disgrace and dishonor. It's pride that tears families and churches and ministries and elderships and diaconates apart. But it is humility that brings great promises from God. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament in Isaiah 66 and verse two, "To this one eye, that's God, will look. He who is humble." contrite in heart and trembles at my word so how do we humble ourselves before christ as his servants his disciples like i said back in that passage of philippians 2 verses 5 to 11 we got four things there that teach us how we are to humble ourselves and the key to it all is to imitate christ that's the one we are following right that's the one we are serving. So we imitate the example he set for us. If you take your Bibles and just flip over, Philippians 2. We're going to work our way through this. I want us to see the answer, the key to humility. Philippians 2, beginning at verse number 5. This is what the Bible says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Number one, do not regard equality with God a thing to grasp. Now you go. Well, hold on a second. Nobody here is claiming equality with God because if we did, we'd lock you up and throw away the key. No, that's not what he means. The idea there is to hold tightly onto God for fear of losing it. So Paul is writing about Christ and saying, Jesus did not hold tightly to his deity for fear of losing it. And you know what's interesting? As you read through the stories of Paul in the New Testament... Paul or Saul never expressed, to my memory, any doubt as to his salvation. By faith, he accepted it as absolutely secure. What's the point? You and I have been saved by the grace of God. By trusting in Christ, we have salvation. What sets us free to be humble before the Lord? Recognizing and accepting that our salvation is absolutely secure. They could put Saul in the bottom of the Mamertine dungeon, a horrific place to be stuck. They could drag him outside the city and put his head down a lump of wood and drive a sword blow through his neck to sever it to kill him. And he never once lost hope that he would lose his had lost salvation. He never lost the hope of his salvation, is what I'm trying to say. What's the point? Brother and sister in Christ, one of the parts where we can develop humility is recognizing that our salvation is absolutely secure. Whatever they do to us in this world, they cannot take our salvation away. A sovereign call to follow Christ requires us to respond in humility, knowing who we are in Christ. The second thing there, Christ emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, for Christ, it meant to lay aside his visible glory for a time. Anyone seeing Jesus walking on earth during his earthly ministry, perhaps from a bit of a distance, would have thought that he was just another ordinary 30-plus-year-old man, Jewish man. He wouldn't have looked any different to any of us. For Saul, it was no longer to refer to himself as the Pharisee, the Roman citizen, the educated man. He only used his citizenship in one case to to, to do with being uh, unjustly flogged. He didn't use it all the time. He didn't have cards made up for, you know, Saul, Pharisee, apostle, all those kind of things. He no longer referred to himself in his letters as... Those things, but rather he referred to himself and he saw himself as the slave, the bondservant, the apostle, the least of all apostles, the chief of sinners. That's how he saw himself. For Saul to empty himself literally means to put all those things that made him somebody or something and put them aside. For us, it means to let go of the things that bring us honor and credit and acclaim and recognition and affirmation from each other. It's to empty, Put those things aside. No longer giving our spiritual resume everywhere we go. Well, you know, I preached here and I preached there and I have this degree and that degree. And, you know, I've led thousands to Christ, but, you know, I'm just a humble guy. No is to put all those things aside. It's no longer looking for the affirmation and regard of man. It's no longer making sure that everybody knows who I am and what I have accomplished. And here's the part where I get to be brutally honest. You know what I struggle with most? That. It's too easy to go around and start giving out your resume to drop little comments and little hints about what you've done and where you've been and all those other things but the bible says if you read that passage again the main point of that passage i just read is this have this attitude in yourselves humility Saul was knocked backward off his horse, knocked down onto the ground. He had to humble himself as he was blinded. He had to let somebody else lead him by the hand. He was humbled by God that he might be used greatly by God. So how is it? Why is he writing this? He isn't just writing to expound the greatness of Christ, which is wonderful by itself. He's writing to drive across a point to us that humility is absolutely necessary for ministry. Notice thirdly, he says he took the form of a bond servant. For Christ, he took on the role, the heart, the attitude, the devotion, the obedience of a servant. Christ being truly God is equal to the Father in deity, power, glory, omniscience, immutability and all the rest of the attributes of God. But he took the form of a servant. He submitted himself to God to be obedient to the Father, to obey all that the Father had given and told him to do. He took the form of a servant. For us, it means the same thing. We submit to God as servants to be obedient to God. For some of us, it may mean exercising Romans 12, 1 and 2 every day bringing ourselves to God and surrendering who we are on the altar and saying, Lord, take me and use me, even if today results in my death. He humbled himself, the fourth thing, by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And here we see the essence of humility before God and submission to God, being willing to take the road, the path, and the journey through death in obedience to God, trusting entirely in God as we do, to be willing to have God's will done rather than our own. You want to see a wonderful portrayal of humility? Go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What's he say? If it's possible, let this cop pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. That's humility. That's what Paul did. He said, "Not my will," and he submitted himself fully in humility to God to follow wherever the Lord led. And he could write later in life, in prison. He wrote this from prison: "For me to live, Christ." There's no "is" there in the Greek. It just jumps from one to the other. And it's the most powerful statement: "For me to live, it's all about Christ. For me to die is gain." And brothers and sisters, to serve the Lord in whatever part that God has placed us to put in, whether it's a pastor or a carpenter or a tiler or a businessman or a mechanic or whatever, doctor, lawyer, doesn't matter. It requires humility. It requires taking the form of a bond and emptying ourselves, becoming obedient to death, to know what it means to say, for me to live is Christ. Obedience to Christ, worship for Christ, service for Christ, Christ first, Christ in everything. And to die, to die to myself, to die to sin, to die to the world, to die to everything else. That's gain. <laughs> I'm not there yet. Sorry to be brutally honest. And I strive in prayer. Plead with God that we might all get there. We might know what it means to just empty ourselves of everything and bow our heads before our Savior and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Third thing I want to make us understand or get us to help us understand, Christ's call to serve requires submission. Submission. Saul submitted to Christ as his Lord. How do we know? Well, first of all, in verse 5, back in Acts chapter 9, he recognized the speaker is Lord, kurios, master. He called Christ Lord, and he lived in the reality of that truth. He submitted by obeying Christ, doing all that he was told to do. You see it in verse 8. He went to Damascus verses 9 and 12, he waited where he was told. In verses 17 and 18, he submitted himself into the hands of one whom he was just recently plotting to arrest. In verse 20, he immediately began to proclaim Christ's name. The Lord had just said, he will bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And as soon as he's baptized, he spends time with the disciples and goes into the synagogues and saying, I was wrong, he's Lord. He began proclaiming it. He submitted in total dependence of his life to Christ's will. He submitted his remaining life all the rest of his day to Christ's will and leading. Saul or Paul called himself a doulos, slave to the master. In Acts 21 and verse 13, Paul said, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Saul submitted himself from Acts chapter 9 and verse 8 to the end of his life to Christ's sovereign call to serve him as the Lord's servant. And once again, as great an example as Saul is, he is not the ultimate example of submission. It is indeed our Lord Jesus Christ again. Our Lord Jesus is our ultimate example of godly submission. Christ, in calling us to submit and to follow him, calls us to do so, to do what he has already done and set the example for. In Isaiah 42 and verse 1 and Matthew 12 verse 18, it makes it clear that Christ is the chosen servant of God. In Luke 2, verse 51, Jesus lived in subjection to his parents, Mary and Joseph. In Matthew 26 and verse 39, we quoted already. He prayed in submission to his father's will. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It requires humility, and it's an exercise of submission to God. John 18, verses 12 to 13, the Bible describes the story of Jesus being arrested. I love the story. It's, it's a great story. He's in the garden. The soldiers come in. they got all their torches and their lanterns and their clubs and their swords. There's 400 of them, if, by, if, if the history tells it correctly. And there's Jesus. They're looking for one man. Who do you seek, he says. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And I don't know whether he whispered it or he spoke it or the heavens thundered as he said it. I am he. And 400 men drew back and fell to the ground. The power of the pronouncement of God's name from this man standing there. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you the truth. I'm here. And this is what it says. They bound his hands. And to me, that's one of the most powerful statements in Scripture. Why? Because they overpowered him? Good luck. Why? Because there was more of them than him? No. Because he submitted himself and the hands of the Creator God were bound in front of him and they led him away. He submitted himself to the executioners and torturers who were there to put him to death. He submitted himself in obedience to death, even on a cross. He submitted himself to the grave in faith of his resurrection. Christ is for us the ultimate servant of the Lord, chosen by God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where it falls down for us. The call to follow Christ requires our submission to God as Lord. The call to serve the Lord requires submission to Christ. We learn submission. By submitting to parents and teachers as children. As citizens in a country, we learn submission by submitting to the governing authorities unless their words violate scripture. Then we have a higher call. But in the meantime, we submit. As members in the local church, we submit to elders and pastors. As elders in the church, there's three of us for a really good reason. Why? So that each of us submits to the other two. As a congregation together, we submit to Christ as Lord. As individual disciples and Christians, we all submit to Christ. Ananias, in the story, submitted to Christ to go and serve this one. Brothers and sisters, heads up. Beware the mindset, the spirit of rebellion that's steadily taking hold within the wider church. It's a refusal to submit. I hear about an occasion we meet men who have a desire to serve in the local church and yet will not submit to the leading and the governing of the elders. We meet men who come along with a desire to lead in the church but cannot and will not submit to, to what Scripture calls them to do. In Hebrews 13 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that we're commanded to submit to the leaders in a church why, as pastors and elders, we will one day stand before God to give an account for our shepherding of the sheep that God has entrusted to our care. You think that doesn't keep me awake sometimes? Absolutely it does. The Lord of glory, the shepherd, our great high priest, has entrusted into mine and Wes's and Proven's care the congregation of Noble Park Baptist Church. And when we have the joy of bringing them, bringing you to him, he will look at us and say, now what did you do with the sheep that I gave you? What will you do? That's why the writer to Hebrews will say, submit to your leaders. They will give an account for you. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the point here. A sovereign call by Christ to be on mission with him in his work requires submission to him, to his word first. Saul had to learn in those early days and weeks. It was up till Acts 13 before he goes off as a missionary and starts writing the years later after that. He had to learn what submission is. So, the question again how do we submit? Just like how do we be humble ourselves? How do we submit? And the answer is almost the same. We look to Christ who submitted to his heavenly father. We look to the examples of Paul, the disciples, and church history. We look to the examples of older godly men and women in our context. We look to the scriptures and we bend and bow ourselves in submission to it. The scriptures. Jesus' words. And Paul's words are absolutely key. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For me to live is Christ. It's easy for us to go. Christ in glory. I think what Paul meant was no, Christ on a cross. He man Christ walking and talking and teaching in this earth. He meant Christ as he stooped to heal and touch lepers and, and all of that. For me to live, Christ, to die is gain. And although my will wants this and that, and I can justify my ideas a thousand different ways, the answer is the same. Not my will, but yours be done, O oh Lord. Brother and sister sitting here this morning, can you say that? I plead with my own heart that I can say that and it's a constant battle to constantly bend my will to Christ. I was uh, was straightening a bumper. How did I get off on this? I was straightening a bumper in my my garage on uh, Friday and it took a great deal of effort. Uh, Hammer and clamps and a lot of uh, growling at the bumper and I finally beat it into submission and I got to bend. And you know what? That's kind of what it's like with us in the Lord at times. Although I think we're more like tempered steel. You know what tempered steel is like when you beat it? It bounces back, right? You smack it down and it bounces back again. What's the point? We're like that, aren't we? There's a stubborn human nature inside of us that keeps fighting against that submission. It keeps fighting against that desire, that call to humble ourselves, that God might use us. And there are times, so sadly, I saw just recently, a couple I know, tremendous potential, tremendous gifting, and yet they are not after years, decades of looking for opportunities to serve in a church. You know Why? Submission and humility are great problems, and it keeps them from being used by God. And they live a life of frustration and bitterness now. What's what's the point of all of this? I'm sorry, I'm off my notes a bit. What's the point of all this? Christ in this chapter shows his sovereign authority and control over his mission, sovereignly choosing Saul, the one we would never choose, sovereignly choosing Ananias, maybe we would choose him, and using them together for his purposes and his glory, using Saul for the rest of his life to write scripture, to preach the gospel, to suffer for his name. And in order to use him, there had to be humility, there had to be submission, and there had to be obedience. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the message of the text is the same for us. God desires to sovereignly use us in different areas. You might be an evangelist. You might be the next Billy Graham. You might be a missionary to a far field, And you might be a humble beekeeper, like my friend Larry. And God can greatly use you wherever you are. But the key in that response has got to be humility before God, a submission to God, and obedience to God. How will you respond? How will you respond to how God has called you? Will you submit yourself to him entirely, to his will, to the scriptures, to the authorities that God has already placed in your life? Will you humble yourself, not considering your salvation something that can be lost, emptying yourself of everything, taking the form of a servant, even to the point of death? Will we? May God help us. May God work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring those attitudes and those responses out that God might greatly use us wherever he has placed us. And by the way, where God placed you, you might be in the public eye and millions might know the name of you. Or as Paul Washer says, he might stick you in the back of some jungle and nobody will know your name and he will greatly and powerfully use you for his glory. Both, both are the same in a sense because it's humility and submission and obedience in both cases. I'm gonna leave my last point. We'll just, we'll just close it off there. Would you stand with me and we're gonna to pray together, Please. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. And Father, we bow our heads. But I pray, I plead with you, O Lord, our God, that alongside of a bowed head in prayer, there would be bowed hearts, bowed wills. Men and women, young and old, in submission to the living God. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Christ's sovereign call of us to come and believe the gospel, his sovereign call of each of us to place us and use us to to spread the gospel wherever he puts us. And Father, I pray for each of us that there would be that bending of our wills, submitting ourselves fully. And, Father, we recognize immediately that that submission, that humility might one day wind up in a death for the sake of Christ, as Paul's did, and all those apostles and disciples, as they died for their faith, they died for Christ. Father, I plead with you that you would do a great work in all of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Shake us to the core. Bring us, O God, to our knees. That we might confess that he is Lord, not just with a voice, but with a heart in love for Christ. A heart fully submitted to him. Lord, we ask you for these things. We plead with you, O God, for your help. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.